so I'm going to do that just like I did with Jerry Hall. <laughs> she has uh, recently written a book that's coming out on the 2nd of April, and it's entitled uh, Dementia Reimagined, Building a Life of Joy, Dignity, Joy, Dignity, and... Oh, of Joy oh, and yeah. Dignity from Beginning to End. From Beginning to End. Thank you very much. Uh, Tia is, uh, is a bioethicist, and uh, she is the director of the Montefiore Einstein Center for Bioethics and of the Einstein Cardoza Master of Science in Bioethics program. She's a professor of epidemiology, division of bioethics and psychiatry. She has bioethics expertise in public policy, dementia, consultation, end-of-life care, decision-making capacity, bioethics education, and the ethics of public health disasters. She's her four years as executive director of the New York State Task Force on Life and the Law, which functions as New York State's Bioethics Commission. She has worked with the Institute of Medicine on many projects related to public health and ethics and most recently served on the 2017 report on community approaches to address health inequities. She's a board-certified psychiatrist and a fellow of the New York Academy of Medicine, the American Psychiatric Association, and the Hastings Center. Welcome, Tia Powell. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy you're here. We're going to get right into it because uh, your book, I, I have read your book prior to this. I know it's not coming out until April 2nd, and I anxiously await my hard copy. Uh-huh. But I, I just wanted through a few questions for you about the book. Uh, in the beginning of the book, you uh, delve into the dementia history in some detail. And I'm curious to know why you felt the history was important. Well, you know, it was important to me. I was so puzzled by the fact that, obviously, dementia has always been with us. There are very few new diseases, and yet... Dementia wasn't really considered a disease until basically a little bit more than 100 years ago. So I wanted to understand what were people thinking when they saw somebody who we would today consider has dementia. How did they, how did they try to help that person? How did they categorize them? What did people understand was going on? And I found out a lot, not all of it very pleasing. I mean, among other things, because dementia wasn't really seen as a separate disease, Dementia, uh, people with dementia got lumped together with people with all sorts of other mental illnesses, ended up in asylums, and weren't really in a place where sort of specific treatments could be aimed at them. And unfortunately, at various times in history, people with mental illness have been treated very badly, very punitively with, you know, eating and chains and starvation, all kinds of terrible things. So that's one of the things that was happening with people, for people with dementia way back when. So even though it's not great today, it's mostly better than that, better than where we were some hundreds of years ago. But I I wanted to kind of put things together and figure out when and how dementia became clearly seen as an illness instead of people saying, oh, you know, I don't know, some older people, they just get stupid, we don't care, what are you going to do? When did it get to be seen as this is a specific problem, mostly in older people but not exclusively, and what's to be done, what's happening there? So I was really intrigued by that, and I feel like I didn't learn that at all in medical school. So I wanted to educate myself more. I think that's very interesting that you say you didn't learn that in medical school. Uh, those of us in the FCD community struggle with that all of the time. 
we are constantly educating physicians who sometimes do not take to that very well about FCD because they really have not heard about it in their education. And uh, so it's interesting for you to say that you didn't even know much about dementia with your medical training. I think we've all found that to be quite true in the medical community. Do you think that's changing? I do. I think uh, it's changing a lot, and that is a really good thing. I, I do think now there are real specialists in dementia. But, you know, until relatively recently, you know, in terms of medical history and world history, it was really only in the 1970s that people started to think, no, really, there are a lot of older people, and a significant percentage of them have dementia. We better really get on it. We better. We don't know what's happening here. We don't understand it. So the kind of modern era of dementia research really gets started in its kind of beginnings in the 1970s, and it's grown steadily since then. So now there definitely is, there's more money going into research, there are more smart people going into it, there's more of a general sense of this is a really important thing to do. But the word is certainly not out everywhere. I think a lot of people seen by, you know, their general practitioner, that may be absolutely somebody who's never heard of FTD, who you know, might understand Alzheimer's and might say, oh, you have Alzheimer's, but gee, that's funny, you're kind of young, um, or may not even connect the symptoms of FTD with dementia because it doesn't exactly resemble the more familiar symptoms of, of Alzheimer's disease. So I, I think um, for a lot of people, there's still real gaps in general medical knowledge. Uh, for people who live around major medical centers where there's lots of research and lots of specialists, it's a little bit better. You have a better chance of being referred to somebody who recognizes what they see and can at least give you an accurate diagnosis, but that's not true for all of us by a long shot. Yes, I think our community has found that to be quite true. Mostly when people call and say, where do I go to get a diagnosis, I always say go to a major center, even if you're far away, just to get the diagnosis and have a place to start with your local provider. So um, here in here in Atlanta, we have Emory, of course, which is an ADRC, and they have a program called the Integrated Memory Care Clinic, which does primary care for people with all dementias, which is so beneficial because they have their own social worker and so forth. But that is true that across the country that's not the case. And um, it is kind of difficult for us in the FD community to find that good care, even in primary care. So I, I hope that that's going, going forward. I, I've, I've seen that going forward quite well. Um, obviously, there's that cure versus care, and mm-hmm. I know that you and I have discussed that. And I met Tia on, on uh, Twitter and I was liking a lot of things she said because, as you all know, I am very much about care, and cure is for someone way in the future. And um, care for us now. Tell us how to work this system now and uh, to get what we need. And, uh, Tia, do you, do you find that you lean more towards the care than the cure? Absolutely. I mean, you know, meanwhile, of course, I'm not opposed to cure. That would be fantastic. And I do, you know, I hope people will continue to do research and really try to figure out what's going on. But um, even with the substantial ramp up in funding for dementia research over the last, you know, decade or so, 
we are still really in trouble, even for Alzheimer's disease, which gets you know the lion's share of the research money. We have not had the success that most people hoped for. And just about a week or so ago, there was another one of these giant, multimillion-dollar failed clinical trials uh, testing a drug called aducanumab um, and showing one more time that getting rid of amyloid does not work to improve uh, the circumstances of people with Alzheimer's disease. So, again, that's not FTD, but we, um, we don't have a cure. I do not believe that, they, that the cure is around the corner. Another thing that was helpful about studying the history is that, you know, I can tell you that since the late 1970s, people have regularly been saying, oh, we are this far from a cure from dementia. We've got this great thing. We've got this supplement, or it's all about aluminum, or it's all about this, or it's all about the other thing. And unfortunately, none of those things has panned out. We don't have anything that looks like a cure, and I don't really think it's coming soon. I hope it will come one day. But meanwhile, we have millions and millions of people with dementia of all different kinds, including FTD, and they need help now. And the help that they're going to get now is not going to be a cure. Well, that doesn't mean care is not important. We've got literally like 6 million people with dementia just in the U.S., and it's, it's all over the world. It's not like it's limited to us. So I think to some extent the research community is guilty of saying we won't have to take care of people if we just cure it. So let's just focus on that. We won't worry so much about the care. And I think that is a mistake. And it's meant that there's not as much research about best practices as I would like to really think about what's the help that somebody needs? What's the help their caregiver needs? What do families need? To really be able to support somebody with dementia, keep them home as long as that's safe and appropriate, when that's no longer the right choice, get them to some kind of um, place where they can live, where they still have dignity and they're still treated with respect, have what you would want for yourself or certainly what the FTD community wants for the people it loves. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, a very you're, – you're speaking my speak here because I'm, I'm all about the uh, care versus the cure. I, yeah. As you say, I'm all for the cure, but I would like to see as much put into care as cure. We're all drowning out here, and everyone just wants to make the bazillion dollars on the cure. Um, there was one quote that I wanted to mention to you that I think is absolutely fabulous. And if I had known this quote before I got my new business cards printed, it would be on there. And that <laughs> quote is <laughs> that quote is the vulnerable end up where others let them fall. I think that's powerful, Taya. Uh, that is so true. They end up where we have led them. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I, um, as everyone knows, (laughs) talk a lot about, is that you, being a care partner for someone with dementia, and particularly FTD, you have to learn what works and what doesn't, and you have to let go of what you think should happen and go right. with what is the name. And, and I think this quote really hits that because we need to understand that our, the people that we're living with with FTD are vulnerable. We know that. And we're the ones that let them fall if we don't understand the disease and we don't understand where things are coming from. 
And that's why I'm such a huge advocate of, of education and learning about FCD and going to every webinar you can go to. I think it's very important for you to know what you're dealing with. I agree uh, completely, thing. and I really think um, the way we've treated people with dementia has not particularly reflected that well on us as a, as a nation. I do think that there are wonderful individuals and families who are giving their all but I, I've got to tell you, I get distressed. A lot of people, you know, as I'm, I, as people do, I've written this book, and so I'm doing a lot of conversations like this one. And I get, a lot of people ask me, well, you don't think the government should be involved in this, do you? And I've got to tell you, yes, I do. I think the government should definitely be involved. They can't do everything. But, you know, does that presume that families are not now doing something? Families are doing an unbelievable amount. They supply the overwhelming majority of dementia care. And moreover, because dementia affects a lot of older people, a lot of those people have no family. There's nobody to blame, you know, for not stepping in to take care of that person. They're on their own. So I really think, um, you know, you may hate big government, but I'm not sure what you think an 85-year-old with advanced dementia who can only live in a nursing home, what should she do for herself? How should she pull herself up by the bootstraps? I'm really curious to get the answer to that. I mean, just, you know, so I don't think we're going to be able to put this just on the backs of families and certainly not on the backs of individuals with dementia. That, that's me, you know, and I try not to be political. But I really do think that this is going to take health policy. It's going to take smart thinking about you know, what is good care, and it's fine to use dollars efficiently. It's fine to not think of what's the most expensive way to do it, but what's the, you know, what is good value for your dollar, and how do you give people the support that they need? What would that look like? Uh, I'm really curious to know, because we're not there yet. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <clears throat> the stupid cold. Uh, mm. <laughs> I want, that sort of goes along with, um, in the book, you say, uh, we can't science our way out of dementia. Right, and I think that goes right along with this discussion we that we just had here about how we do need to involve governments, whether they be state, federal, or both, in that care portion. And uh, I have encouraged people to get involved in their dementia plan for their state and get involved in those committees that drive that uh, in their particular state, because. Just like anything else, I think if you work locally and then statewide and then nationally, nationally takes forever. And right. um, even though Napa and they are making progress, everything has to be go through research and find out if it's the absolute positively best way to do things after $2 million and we could have told them in 30 seconds. Uh, so it, it is kind of laborious to go through a national type of issue. So. I always like to encourage people to do it locally and state-involved. Uh, do you feel that's a good way to approach that? I sure do. I mean, I think both are really important. I, I think on a smaller kind of state and local level, sometimes more freedom to do kind of a pilot project. you got a little more room to move. You could say, hey, I have this great idea. I'd like to try something creative. Um, and a lot of great programs have come up that way, where somebody with a good idea says, would you give me, you know, a little bit of space, or, you know, I'd like to try this, I'd like to try 
working with therapy dogs with people with dementia, see if that's helpful. You know, a bunch. Of, you know, really try that on the on the smaller scale and kind of show that it looks promising, and then you can bring some of those things forward to the federal level. If you get something done on the federal level, that's awesome because there's incredible power there, there's lots of dollars, and there's an incredible capacity to shape overall national policy. But you can't start there for the most part. You've really got to have an idea and kind of demonstrate that it's sound, that it's, you know, it's worth pursuing further and seeing if you can scale it up a bit. So I agree with you. I think it's great. And I also think um, in terms of really getting care for your loved one, you don't necessarily, I, I mean, I don't want to be non-national, but you want the care that's available in a decent commuting distance for you. So it, there's all the more reason to work on your local level. I mean, do you guys have a, a day program? I think that's a, a, a great day program where somebody can dementia can go and their family can know that they are happy and well taken care of and still be able to get to their own doctor's appointment or hold down a job if they need to. That's an incredible blessing for a community to have that. So if you were able to work on something like that in your community, that's going to be great for you and your family. So absolutely, I think getting funding for that, doing a public-private partnership, whatever it takes, you know, finding a great space, renovating it, get some donations, all that kind of stuff. When people do those projects, and they're doing them all over the country, it's really powerful. Yes, I agree. And, and I do think, I know we're all very busy in our care uh, with our care hats on, but sometimes it doesn't take much for you to make a difference. Here in Georgia, all of our meetings for the uh, Georgia Alzheimer's and Related Dementia Plan are by phone. Perfect. So we can stay at home and do yeah. them and make a difference. And I, I have to tell you that uh, I have said this online, I have made a difference and I have now brought in other people in Georgia who deal with FCD, and we are making a difference. And and I think we, everyone can make a difference. And I, I do think that it's part of our responsibility to be involved in making that difference. We can't, I, I know looking to government to help us with programs and so forth is not a bad thing, but I think it's unreasonable for us to think that they're going to come up with the right answer. We're the ones that have the answers, and we're the ones that have to tell them what they really need to do. I agree. You have the information. And I do think it's great when people get involved. And the, the, there's another good thing about that. I think it's also good for you. I think being a caregiver can be really isolating. I think that's one of the hardest things about it. So reaching out that caregiver community where you don't have to apologize if there's, you know, noise in the background or you have to get off the call quickly or something like that. To be part of a community where of people who really understand what you're going through and are really eager to hear about your experience and the things you've learned and know how valuable that is, I think that's really a lifeline for some caregivers. I, I know that some of the best work that Alzheimer's associations across the country are doing is they offer caregiver support groups, and I think some are by Skype or phone, as you're saying, because that's a lot easier for a caregiver. But I, I think that makes all the difference in the world for people. It's very helpful. Yes. Uh, I started an online chat on caregiving.com for FTD community. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going on it's three years, I think, now. And we meet every Monday and Saturday at 7 o'clock on caregiving.com in our own FTD chat room. And it really becomes a family. You really receive the most information from people that are also dealing with the same thing. So I think us networking is important. And then you have 
power in numbers if you then go on the state level and you bring five or six or seven people with you, you can make a difference. I, I really I really believe that we can make the difference. I agree. And it's really important to do that to be heard. Yeah. Uh, you address in the book uh, sex, driving, and money. And those of us in the FTD community particularly struggle with these three things. Because FTD oftentimes with behavior variant has disinhibition, sex becomes a big issue for us. Driving as well, because anosognosia is very prominent in the FTD community, the people not realizing they're even sick, and it's hard for them to give up that independence, and also taking care of their own money. Um, you made some good suggestions in the book, and you talked about that. Could you just touch a little bit on those three subjects and how we can help ourselves deal with those? Absolutely. I, I think this is really important. And, and this is the one of the ways in, the, in which the focus on cure has prevented us from really putting our heads together and thinking about what are helpful supports for people with dementia. As you're, you're absolutely right, this is a big issue for people with FTD. But for the vast majority of people with any kind of dementia are in the earlier phases, and they are in their community, and they are making choices. So it's really, it's a problem throughout dementia because the majority of people are not in that final, final phase where they, you know, everybody knows they can't make decisions about money. So I think choices around sex, drugs, and money are ones that people really see as part of their right in terms of being an adult. It's very painful. It's very humiliating for a lot of people to be told, you're not capable of doing that anymore. They feel like they've been infantilized and made into babies. And to some extent, they're right. So trying to figure out what's the right balance here? How can you respect somebody? How can you recognize we're talking about an adult here and also keep them safe and get that balance right between not running over somebody's rights to be an adult but also not letting vulnerable people just go without any protection. So it's really tricky. Um, starting with money, I think we have to recognize there's a huge amount of financial fraud against the elderly in general, but certainly against people with dementia, where financial capacity goes, people lose judgment, they lose their numeric capacity, they're not as good with math as they maybe used to be. Um, and there are a lot of people out there who are very happy about that because they'd like to take that money from the person with dementia. So I think there's something like $3 billion a year worth of elder fraud involving money in the U.S., and um, a lot of it is people who are in the early stages of, of dementia. They're still controlling their finances. They have full access to their bank account. Their family member may be devoted but may not realize that this is an issue because it could be one of the first that goes. Um, and then suddenly they wake up and all of this person's retirement savings are just gone. So this is a big issue. I, I think there are things you can do. Um, the banks are actually getting very smart about it. The banks are able to sort of track unusual patterns of, of banking, they, and they can notify, listen, you never sent an international money order, and now suddenly I see you sending you know, $10,000 by money order to Norway, and you've never been there. What's going on with that? So... Um, you know, I think if you're worried about a family member, they may be able to set things up with their bank account so that you get an alert if there's something unusual. Um, in some cases, people want to control their money, but they'll let a third party have the right to view their bank account so you could at least 
If it's your parent, maybe, you know, take a look and see what's going on and put the kibosh on things if you think that's not safe, that's not okay. So I, I would, if you're worried about somebody in your family, I would talk to your local bank about, you know, what kinds of helpful oversight and controls and things they have going on. And, of course, for somebody, if you can really prove that they lack capacity, you can get a power of attorney and you can get control of their money. But oftentimes, by the time you can prove somebody does not have capacity, the damage is done. It really happens when they're kind of on that, in that interim phase. So that, that's pretty scary and something to watch out for. Um, in terms of driving, man, that is the way to have a contentious conversation with somebody in your family when you tell them they've got to stop driving. That did not go very well in my family when my mother um, had, you know, advancing dementia and had to stop driving. So I have been there. Um, I do think there are, again, if you have an academic medical center near you, you probably can get some testing done to see if your family member is still okay in terms of driving. But it's not available for everybody. And it's not just about can you see and hear, you know, basic things like that, but it also speaks to issues around judgment. A lot of the ways people with dementia get into trouble is that their their executive function skills are not so good. So if they get lost, they no longer have the problem-solving skill to think, huh, I don't know where I am. You know what, why don't I pull over safely over here, and I'll just, I'll think about what to do. Maybe I'll think about whether or not there's a gas station, or do I have my phone, can I call somebody, can I use the phone to look up on Google Maps? If you don't have that problem-solving skill, you can really panic and hurt yourself or somebody else, or end up three states away, run out of gas. So um, the driving issues are pretty tricky. I, you know, I hope it's not soon enough for us to get uh, self-driving cars that you can sort of program like a faithful hound to take you home if you're lost. Um, that would be awesome, and I bet we'll get there in the next decade or so, but we're not there now. Um, so thinking about when it's time to get the keys away from somebody and making that happen, very painful issues, but it's really important to do it. And I, I wish we had better public transportation. I actually think the ride-sharing services, Uber, Lyft, you know, that kind of thing, that's a big advance. Um, one of the problems for older people with dementia has been it's been really hard to get that last mile. If you have to go somewhere else and hail a cab or you have to call and wait for a half hour or something, that makes it really tricky. But if you can really reliably get somebody to come to your home pretty quickly, that makes it a lot more likely that you'd be willing to give up driving because you still feel pretty free. So that's that. And then with sex, this is a huge issue. I bet many of you heard about the case of the Rayhans from Iowa where an older gentleman, 78 years old, was arrested for having sex with his wife who had dementia because her daughters from the first marriage thought this was really terrible. If you have dementia, you can't possibly consent. But meanwhile, that person, the woman with dementia, she there was no reason to think that this wasn't okay. She was with her husband. She was always happy to see him. You know, so... Uh, we have a lot of bias that people with disabilities, older people, can't have any appropriate sexual activity. If there's any activity that's sexual, it must be inappropriate. So sometimes that's true. Some people with dementia lose their judgment. They still have sexual feelings, but they don't have the, um, the nuanced idea about when that's appropriate or with whom that's appropriate. It can be a problem. But thinking about how to deal with that really requires more honest conversations within families than we've been used to having. I, I, I think there are some caregivers 
who actually have experienced sexual violence and don't feel comfortable talking about that. It's too embarrassing, too humiliating, and and they may worry that if they tell their doctor that that's going to mean their partner can't live at home with them anymore. So this is a really tough, tough issue where I think more honest conversation, more education, more thinking about what's an appropriate way to welcome intimacy within the setting of dementia? How do we help families and people with dementia figure out what's right and safe and appropriate for them? It's very tricky. Yeah, I agree. We A lot of us struggle with that, and we've had some uh, podcasts on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I just quickly touch on palliative care and hospice and end-of-life issues. Palliative care, I firmly believe that everyone diagnosed with with dementia should immediately go on palliative care. I I think it gives you the support that you need. People misunderstand palliative care. It, It has nothing to do with having six months left to live. And it's much easier for a person with dementia to go into when you uh, have palliative care first. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. I think palliative care, you're you're quite right. People confuse palliative care with hospice. Hospice is absolutely for the end of life, typically meant to be for the last six months, although unfortunately sometimes people don't get in until the last handful of days when they might have benefited from the comforting services that hospice provides for a lot longer. But palliative care is kind of good for anybody with an illness. These days, the best cancer care often starts palliative care right at the beginning when you're absolutely working on work. Because you know what? A lot of medical treatments are painful. And there's no reason that you shouldn't get treatment for that, even if you're aggressively going for cure. So I think it's particularly important to have palliative care done by specialists who understand dementia. If a person has dementia and they're in pain, They may not be able to tell you that it hurts or where it hurts. They may just look agitated. They may be aggressive. But at least in some cases, we're now realizing it's because they're in pain. And we didn't treat their pain and we didn't realize it. So that's a shame. I mean, there's no reason that on top of having dementia, you should also be physically in pain. But, you know, a lot of people with dementia also have uh, arthritis. They also may have fallen down and had a broken hip. So they have every reason also have pain. So we need to get better at helping, you know, people with dementia communicate what's going on with them and figuring out, is this a pain issue? Are you frightened about something? And a, and a person who really understands the specific nature of palliative care in dementia can be so helpful. And there's some great programs that are thinking about what that would look like. You know, what does palliative care for dementia look like? Um, so that's one whole issue. But I also think... We could do a lot better with end-of-life care at dementia. So palliative care is for all phases of dementia, but just looking at the end-of-life care, we could sure do a lot better. Dementia, unfortunately, is a fatal illness. And as it progresses, people get sicker and sicker. We can't cure it. There are people who, unfortunately, very unfortunately, will, will die pretty soon. And in general, in America, in medicine, we haven't done as good a job as we should at thinking about the whole person. So in, in my book, I write about um, when my mother has uh, late-stage dementia. It's pretty at the severe level. She also develops heart block, which means her heart stops ticking every now and then. And, of course, you know, 
that's not sustainable. <laughs> that's not going to work out well in the long run. And a cardiologist very strongly recommended that she should get a pacemaker. But my mother's mother had had a pacemaker with dementia, and my mother's six kids had been miserable. They ever gave her a pacemaker. They really felt that just continued her suffering. That didn't help her at all. It meant that she spent the last you know, period of her life um, in bed, really uncomfortable, and just having no joy at all. So my mother had been very clear. And we had to really fight, um, really fight to think about how would a pacemaker help her and how might it not help her. So we decided to do what she had always told us, because frankly my mother did, did know best in this, uh, in this case and in many others, and we didn't give her the pacemaker. And we are really glad that we did not, because it permitted her at the end of her life not to have to worry about constant rehospitalization, just putting an older person on the gurney and getting them to the ER and letting them lie there in the cold and the noise for hours and hours, it's miserable. They don't know what they're doing. And it's really hard to see what's the benefit of that. It better be a big benefit because the, just the getting there is painful. So I'm glad we were able to spare her that. And I think if we, if we worried less about using all our technology and doing stuff to people at end-stage dementia and thinking instead... It's not if they're going to die, it's how. And what does a good death with dementia look like? How can we keep this person comfortable? How can we honor their values? And it's not about not pe- giving people care. It's about giving them people care that keeps them comfortable, which is, since we can't cure it, we really ought to be focusing on. So I think that that really is going to be a heavy lift. That's going to really take changing the culture of medicine and really rethinking, guys, we are all going to die and we ought to be thinking a little bit more about what that last year of life should look like and what a good death should look like. Instead of pretending, if I do this and I do that and I do the other thing, maybe they won't die. You know what? That's not going to work out. That's not how it's going to unfold. So, But that's, as I say, that's a heavy lift, Sharon. That's going to take us a while. Yes, and but I think we can drive that as well with our yep. end-of-life issues, our advanced directives, and talking, talking, talking about it before yep. it ever happens. Yep. So um, we're going to wind it up here, Tia. We've sort of run out of time. I, I do want to thank you for joining me today. I encourage all of you to look for Tia's book uh, called um, Dementia Reinvented, right? Re- Imagine. <laughs> Dementia Reimagined, Building a Life of Joy and Dignity from Beginning to End. Oh, I don't know why I have such a It's a long but title. It's available on Amazon, so please look for it. And we may in the future uh, be able to get Tia on once again because we've had a great discussion. Thank you so much, Tia. Thank you, and thank you for all the good work you do. Well, thank you. We'll see you all next month. Bye. Bye. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Sharon Hall, and I am here today with Dr. Tia Powell,